are, are you geared up <laughs> to uh, stalk uh, cute girls at the ski lodge? Can you imagine not having Galaxy Gear at CES? It's like <laughs> they don't even let you in. They hand them out at the airport. I saw – I took a, a – I don't even know why. I don't know. I took a stupid poll. I Somebody linked to it on Twitter on Time, Time Magazine site today. Uh, it was like, answer these questions and we'll predict your political leaning. And they're, they're not political questions ostensibly. Um, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, what do you think about gun control or something like that? Uh, and I came out 72% conservative according to this and one of them was that uh, conservative qualities was that i like dogs more than cats interesting uh, but i don't think that that's i think that's nonsense i mean i'm not saying that I, I don't think that there's any kind of i don't know maybe i'm wrong though maybe if you polled a thousand people maybe you know maybe conservatives do like dogs more than liberals i don't know it seems crazy to me it seems that the the internet has Embrace cats more than dogs. Hmm. I don't know why, but I don't. I don't like cats at all. Yeah, I don't. Know. I probably just lost a lot of my audience there. But sorry. <laughs> we could talk about baseball. Yeah. No, we should talk about. Uh, we could talk about the pappies. You yeah. Were asking what was that about. about? Uh, well, for people who don't know, but there's there's uh, a uh, well, bourbon's a very complex story, but there's a, a bourbon brand called. Pappy Van Winkle, and and I guess they were out for a while, you know, like back in the seventies or eighties. I don't know. And they brought it back, and they had this old mash, and they've, you know, it, it's a high end brand, and they have various, um, what would you call it, vintages, ages. You know, there's ten year pappies, twelve year pappies, a thirteen year old rye, which I, I believe, since it's a rye, is an entirely different mash. It's really sort of it's the same brand, but it's a different beverage. There's a fifteen year pappies. 20-year, and then there's a 23. And I think long story short, you know, it, it was uh, – it's sort of an aficionado's brand. And, you know, the older it is, the more expensive it was. And it was always a little hard to find and a little expensive. But then somehow at some point in the last two years or so, it, 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 it like exploded and everybody got on, you know, kind of caught on to the – this Pappy Van Winkle stuff is fantastic. And it, now it's impossible to get any of it. I had never heard of it until until it, th there was a scandal about it being stolen or something. That is correct. It's like I, I'd never heard of it, and then like if, I don't know, six months ago or something, it was like Pappy's is a huge deal. Uh, you need to care about it. And I didn't, right. had never heard of it. There was a there was a in, inside job at the at the. I don't know if it's the distillery or if it's just where they store it, but it was, you know, an inside job and a whole bunch of cases of it were stolen about six months ago. Nobody, I, I believe the crime has still gone unsolved. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, Is that what you were drinking? <laughs> no, I don't know. Everybody was joking about that. I don't know. I don't think so. Pennsylvania is a weird state where everybody, including bars has to buy stuff through the state and the, the you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's very tricky for bars to obtain it. Uh, but a local establishment, we're very close to me here. Uh, great barbecue place. Also, all you know, clearly a great bar, Percy Street Barbecue, at Ninth and uh, South here in Philadelphia. 
um, got their hands on the full the full six flights, you know, the full six uh, varieties of of stuff from the Van Winkle Distillery, and had a special event yesterday uh, at five o'clock. Uh, I had no idea how it was going to go, but I figured it was going to fill up quick, so I got there before five, which was good because by f- I think they said by like five fifteen they were out. What? Well, what they did, and I think it was pretty smart. So they had all six. I, I can't help but think they had more of the lesser varieties. But when you came in the door for the event, there was a guy at the front door, and you had to tell him there was a limit of three ounces per patron of anything. You could only, you know, each person could only get three ounces, and you had to pick it as you came in, and they would give you like a little chit. So I I picked uh, two ounces of twenty three and one ounce of twenty. So I got two chits for twenty three and one for twenty. And then you know you could use that as you wanted. If I wanted a single two ounce pour of twenty three, I could have turned in two. I went one one one. I went one twenty three, then one of the twenty to sort of you know see what the difference was, and then back to the twenty three. Uh, and, and they advertised it as not breaking the bank because I think they could have charged an arm and a leg for the stuff, but they charged uh, very, very fair prices. Yeah, because that's part of the legend too that that it cost two hundred dollars for a glass of the you know the good stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and now that it's gotten crazy, like let me quick look on eBay here. Uh, people are selling. One thing you search for on on eBay for for. Uh, Pappy Van Winkle. Most of what you find are empty bottles. People hmm. just selling the bottles, which I can't help but think. It, 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 I mean, who wants an empty? I mean, maybe I can see why some people might want to keep a bottle that they drank if it was a special occasion. Keep it as a memento or something like that. Uh, but why would you want to buy an empty bottle from somebody else unless you were looking to like? Fill it up with something <laughs> else and over, sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I don't get it. I, well, I, when I was in like high school and college, I used to order a lot of uh, beer branded nonsense off eBay. You know, a Zippo lighter and inflatable fish and stuff. Just weird, like Miller High Life crap, which I thought was cool. But yeah, I don't know why you would order an empty bottle of. I've heard I, – I can't even find it here on eBay, but some people have said that – you know, and I don't even know how legal it is. I, don't, I guess in certain states it's legal to sell alcohol on eBay. But hmm. you know, but that on the secondhand market, the 23-year Pappy Van Winkle is going for like $2,000, $2,500 a bottle because it's just – you can't get it. You know, the retail so price it, is a lot less than that. I think the retail price for the 23 is is a couple hundred bucks. And is it is it awesome? Like what – I don't think any bourbon is worth a couple hundred bucks a bottle. Yeah, frankly. that's you know what yeah. I mean. Like I like to spend the money on. I do like to indulge and buy good stuff in life, including you know finer. You know, I like bourbon, so I like to buy good bourbon. But to me, I, I, it isn't even what I could theoretically afford. It's like at a certain point, it's just bourbon. You know, and it's like yeah, you, exactly. You can't drink that much at a time. And I'm very, very. I feel pretty confident that I would fail you know to to do a pepsi challenge between a you know or or it would be like a coin flip you know that i i don't know that i could taste the difference between like you could you could if you put six bourbons in front of me and said one of these is 23 pappy van winkle i'm not entirely sure at all that i could figure that out 
does it have, you know, Pappy in general, does it have like a, a strong, noticeable taste or flavor, or is it just bourbon that? Well, one thing that they're, and, and it came out recently, is that the one thing that they do differently than a lot of other bourbons, or almost all of the bourbons, is that they have a higher, or no, it's, uh, it's all, an all wheat that they don't, they put like the minimum amount of corn in. Hmm. Um, and that there's another bourbon called uh, J.L. Weller, which is made from the same mash. There was this thing I linked to on Daring Fireball a month or two ago, which uh, it, it tried to explain the complicated relationship between various bourbons and ryes in uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and, and Ohio and the other places where they're made in the U.S., where... Um, there's all these. There's great, really just two vats, right? And yeah, just, more or less. Where there's only a couple of what they call, but they start with a mash, and then the mash, you know, is sold to these distilleries to turn into bourbon. But, um, you know, and presumably what happens is they'll take the same mash that's meant to, you know, and Pappy's, the Pappy Van Winkle Distillery will buy it, and they'll they'll put it, you know, they'll put it into uh, barrels for aging. And then they'll sample these every couple years just to see, you know, how's this barrel going? How's this barrel going? And that the better the barrel, the more, the longer, you know, they'll let it go. And only the best of those barrels will go for the full 23 years. And that the lesser ones will, you know, they'll say, okay, this one, let's just bottle this one at 10. This one's, you know, it's not going to get any better. And then they'll bottle it. But that there's this other brand, JL Weller, which is, um, it retails for like, I, th I think it's like 18, 19 bucks. A bottle, but it's made from the same mash as Pappy, uh, and that it's effectively, you know, like a poor man's Pappy. It's more or less like the same mash, but like the stuff that wasn't good enough to be turned into Pappies. And that, to yeah, me, it does taste a lot like Pappies. It's yeah, smooth. Put ginger ale in it. Who yeah. cares? You know, just grab. Uh, I know what it is. Cool. It's that they don't put any rye at all in their ah. in their uh, mash. And so, you know, if you know just basic American whiskeys, you know, the difference between bourbon and rye is that rye is sort of peppery and hot, um, is the basic difference between a basic bourbon and a basic rye. Pappy's, to me, and it's not just knowing that it doesn't have rye, it's like sort of the taste of it, is sort of what rye is to bourbon, Pappy is the opposite to regular bourbon. It's less peppery, less hot, and smoother and really is a lot more drinkable, neat. Hmm. Anyway, the tasting was pretty neat. Cool, yeah, I'll definitely have to try yeah. it sometime. But, uh, you know, and it's and I did, I Instagrammed it, and everybody's like, I got to go there. But it was like, it was like a one-time only thing. It was yeah. Like you, had 15, <laughs> you had 15 minutes to come in and get these tokens, and then we drank them out of it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, brought, I was just in Tokyo, and I brought back some, uh, some whiskey, but I uh, haven't really had a chance to crack into it yet. Um. The other thing I thought was definitely true is side by side, going from the 23 to the 20 and back to the 23, I absolutely tasted the difference. Huh. Um, the 23, which I I think I only had once before uh, in my life, and it was on a trip to Vancouver three or four years ago uh, with a bunch of friends for somebody's birthday. And it was before the whole Pappy's thing exploded. And... Uh, me and my pal Jim Ray uh, saw it on the list of, you know, the whiskeys available. And we're like, this can't, how can this possibly be? And it was like a totally reasonable price per pour. I don't know, huh. like $20 a pour. 
And we, we asked, we were like, are you sure it's 23? And they were like, yeah. And they even showed us the bottle. And we, you know, each had like two of them uh, at like $20 a pour, which was unbelievable. Um, uh, but anyway, the, I think the difference for anybody who cares is that the the 23 is a little bit, I don't know, a little bit nuttier and a little bit spicier. I don't know. It definitely, it's almost a little bit less like what I associate with regular pappies. Hmm. Like, whereas the 20 is that smoother, um, wow, that's definitely, it was like, it was like the platonic ideal of Pappy. Which one is like the, you know, the, I wouldn't say the most common, but the one that's kind of associated the most with being the the good one. Is it the 20 or the 23? I guess, I don't know. I guess the 20 and the 23 are both fairly rare. I've, I've almost never seen them. It used to be not that hard to find them. Like, um. What was that? What's that shithole bar in San Francisco? Um, oh, the Tempest? No, not that one. A little bit a step okay. up, uh, except the bathrooms were. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> not the Tempest. Jesus. Um, uh, I forget the name of it. But Which uh, one? Uh, it's like across the street from the Palace Hotel. I always huh. forget the name. But anyway... Uh, they used to just have it. I mean, I mean you know, it was yeah. like $16, $17 a pour. Then, you know, they ran out. Uh, Park 55 Hotel Bar used to have the 12-year just sitting there. And you could get it and, you know, wasn't exorbitantly priced back in the old days. I think the 12-year was the one that I used to see the most often. Like, not quite the youngest, but not, not aged all that much. I'm going to keep an eye out for it. Um. Uh, Sort of ties into CES too. I remember the because um, I go to Vegas a couple times a year. The the Wynn Hotel and Casino used to have Pappies on the list, you know. And again, very you know, it's you know, it's a, a the Vegas Strip and everything's a little bit expensive. And the Wynn and Encore is you know supposed to be the the best place on the Strip, so everything's you know even more expensive. Um, but like totally reasonable. It was you know like a typical pour of a good bourbon at Wynn or Encore is like I don't know. 12 13 14 dollars and they used to have pappies for like 16 it's crazy hmm. and of course not anymore it's not even listed which brings you, us you gotta be to, in the uh the, the big roller the, the high yeah roller. i'll bet if you get up to like the of course it's back there right the sky casino yeah there's a button in in the win and encore <laughs> you ever go in there you know i was there for opening weekend and i haven't been there since i haven't been to vegas in almost 10 years which wow. is kind of embarrassing wow that's a long time uh, yeah, you go in More like you go in the uh, the elevator, and there's a button that says Sky Casino. It's like the top floor, and it, of course you can't press it. You have to have like a special card to get in. Uh, so I asked somebody at the hotel once. I was like, "What the hell is the Sky Casino?" And they're like, "Oh, you got you don't. That's like uh, it's like people with like a hundred thousand dollar yeah, box lines. lot, uh, right? Yeah, it's like." Uh, like there's usually like a high limit line. Like most casinos have like a high limit area where it's a lot of baccarat and and blackjack tables that start at like a hundred dollars, you know, minimum, maybe even higher. On the weekend, it's like for the people who like that high limit lounge is nowhere near high limit enough. Yeah. Did you ever read that book? Oh, it's probably ten years old now. By uh, a Wall Street Journal writer who got I think a forty thousand dollar advance and. The book was that he was gambling his advance away in Vegas. No, I don't think so. Oh yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, especially for you know 
then I had probably just turned 21, so it was very exciting. I was like, oh, this is this is the uh, the gambling we can't afford to do. Was he w- w- was he a, like like had a gambling problem, or that was the premise? Like he it, that was the premise of the book, right? Like so he's going to take his advance, gamble it, and then write about what happened, huh? And like the kind of treatment he got and stuff like that. Yeah, and you know all the money he won and lost and won and and you know kind of interspersed with stories about his uh, famous Vegas people. And, and he was a Wall Street Wall Street Journal reporter. I th- I think that was what the cover said. You know, I don't know. It could have just been a freelancer or something, but yeah, something like that. Um, right, we got to find it. I'll put it. Yeah, in the it was show good. Forty k. Yeah, something like that. I c- I'll find it. I'll send it to you. Um, all right, that'd be great. Yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah, that would probably be a great way to do it. And you, you know, you might go further than you think with that. I don't know. I forgot how long the, he like stayed there until I think he got sick of it, and then he still had some money or something, and then he came back again and lost all of it. Maybe I don't. I don't remember. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but uh, something like that. Yeah, that's crazy. Which brings us, of course, to CES. Yeah. And what has now become an annual tradition. Yeah. Which is after CES, I have you on the show and we talk about CES, even though neither of us went <laughs> or has ever gone. I've ever been. Yeah. However, I've ever been. And I think last year, I actually re listened to it uh, yesterday. I think we pledged to go this year. <laughs> yeah, so we definitely screwed that up. <laughs> Do you know what the funny part is? The funny part is, is I asked you to be on the show this week because I thought, you know, I know you weren't there. And, I, you know, I, 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 for every reason that I asked you last year, it was the same reason I thought you'd be a, a good guy to you know to talk about it. You know, CES from afar this year, and then after I DM'd you and said, "Hey, can you know I have time to do the show this week?" As soon as I hit send, I was like, "Hey, wait a minute, déjà vu." Didn't I do this last year? And I quickly, I was like, "Oh yeah," and then I remembered that we we agreed to go. Yeah, and and actually, this year even more than last year, I'm kind of mad that I didn't go because everyone. You know, and I'm, I don't want to repeat everything I said last time. We can just link to that <laughs> show. But everyone I know who was there for the right reasons seemed to have a lot of fun. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I and again, we could just maybe we could just splice in all the audio from last year. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I had that same feeling where, like, at the beginning, like, at the start of the, it seems like, like, if you go to cover the show in any sense, whether you're there to actually do like. 100 posts a week like The Verge or Engadget. Um, or even if you're going to take a saner, more filtered approach, you know, and and do a lot of the filtering before you present it to your reader, like, I don't know, like Pogue's new site or something like that. Um, or like my favorite, The Wirecutter, who did one post for all of CES, which is... I just, I love it. It's love so it. awesome. They took like the most insane thing with 5,000 vendors yeah. and did one post, which is so great. But even so, it seems like you go there, you try to get there by Sunday. Even though the show doesn't officially start till Tuesday, it seems like Sunday night the pre-show stuff starts. Monday there's a lot of announcements. And then like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are like the main show days. And I think the main like you're already you're already sweaty, so that's when you just start drinking and gambling and whatever. But uh, <laughs> uh Yeah, it seems it's uh the, I you know in preparation I watched a bunch of like the Verge videos and looked at some of those you know every year there's the article of the ten most ridiculous things that that we saw at CES and that kind of stuff and um, 
the kind of comparison that really sprung to mind is is another thing that I've of course never been to uh, Burning Man. It's just like the same, just a sea, like an endless sea of of ridiculous nonsense and and a lot of garbage and people smell bad. But uh, if you're there for the right reasons, it can be really fun. Yeah, I think the difference between Burning Man and CES for me. It, it, and in some way, like let's say daytime hours, both of them, there's a sort of, I'd like to see it at least once. Mm-hmm. But then in Burning Man at night, you have to sleep in a dirty tent. Whereas yeah. at CES, you can sleep in a nice uh, hotel. Totally. Which yeah. is a real big deal for me. Sleeping in a tent. I, I, I'm kind of hoping I go from here till a long, happy life and eventual death with never having slept in a tent again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I don't know about Burning Man for me. Vegas to me is like Burning Man with uh with a nice room. Yeah. But but just, you know, the any of those pictures, there 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 can be thousands of people in the field of view. It seems just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh and you know, of course a lot of them are are there to do actual work. Like there are, there have been some pretty good serious stories about people who are there for you know, actual job functions. And one of the things that seemed ridiculous to me at first about this year was like, Oh, Marissa Mayer is giving the keynote. What Mm -hmm. the hell? But then I, but then I read an article about how, um, you know, as digital media has become so much a part of the consumer electronics industry, huge ad deals are happening out there. And so, you know, you see, there's some very strange vines of, um, uh, who's that guy? David Blaine doing magic tricks in front of Dick Costello from Twitter. Yeah. It's just, do you see that? It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> and yeah, and I'm sure Marissa Mayer and David Pogue, you know, went from the keynote straight into a meeting with, you know, Samsung or something and said, hey, write us a billion dollar check. So, uh, <laughs> there, you know, there people are doing work out there too. Um, but also just insanity too. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like a, a lot of the consensus reporting I've seen from CES this year is that the craziness was dialed down a lot, hmm. and not in terms of um, like the size and scope of the thing, but the just like the the stupid, crazy. I don't even understand what's going on here. Sort of, um, yeah. Exhibit. No vaguely racist, uh, right? Acrobatic stuff or anything the whole like and I, I saw a couple people mention that booth babes seem to be on the decline hmm. maybe uh, well they probably listened to our show from last year and got some sense about that i don't know uh I, I, one of the things i was thinking about is wouldn't it be funny if this was the year that uh apple actually had a giant booth and just didn't tell anyone <laughs> <laughs> like oh yeah we did the we, we kept the beyonce album a secret let's uh let's have a huge ces booth this year too <laughs> I just remember every year someone would would report some rumor like, oh, you know, Apple Apple to give CES keynote. Of yeah. course not, you know. But. Well, and it was rampant after they pulled out of MacWorld. Right. Um, I mean, it wasn't even just for the next year, although that was one year where it was at a fever pitch. It, but even the next year, there was a lot of rumor reporting that Apple was going to do a keynote and big exhibit at CES. And it's like, no, you know. Was, yeah. No way they were going to do no, that. The, the guy from NVIDIA has has to outbid them. So right. 
I did think one of the big stories, and I don't know, you know, maybe the sample size is too small to really draw a conclusion. Um, But Apple, of course, it wasn't there officially, um, which is not to say that it weren't Apple employees there. There were, you know, there always are to talk to, um, you know, component makers and stuff like that. I I saw one mentioned in an article, um, Apple retail buyers, you know, looking at at stuff to sell in the stores. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I'm sure that there are engineers there too, just, you know, to see, because it's the one thing that something like CES does is it gets the entire industry all together and you can see stuff in person and there's, you know, you know, there's, there's reasons to, to be in person. You know, the, the behind the scenes stuff is as important as the show floor, maybe more important. Um, but also Microsoft was not there even though they, you know, for years that was CES was sort of their Macworld Expo. That was, you know, they were the keynote address, the kickoff keynote for, I don't know, 10, 15 years in a row, um, dating all the way back to the Bill Gates era and then all the way through most of the Steve Ballmer era. But they, you know, not only have dropped out of the keynote, they had no show show floor presence at all, uh, nor did Google. Uh, and just to throw in one more, nor, nor did Amazon. Now, Amazon never has either. But they do make consumer electronics. The Kindle line is, um, I, I think it's impossible to dismiss. I mean, it's, you know, the, the market share stuff I've seen after Christmas for tablet use, usage clearly puts the Kindles in second, a, a very strong second place um, in the U.S. But they, you know, were not there either. And the thing that struck me about all four of those companies is that they're U.S. companies, and I think that, you know, unless I'm overlooking somebody, I mean, tell me if I am, they're the four big U.S. consumer electronic companies. Apple, Definitely. Google, Microsoft, and um, Amazon. And none of them were at CES. It seems like it's almost, you know, like the big exhibits are all from the Asian companies. Right. Sony and Samsung. Right, L- and uh, companies like LG. Right, you know. it, yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know if there's. I, I wonder what. I wonder why that is. Yeah, and I don't know if it's it, like I said. There's only four of them, and they're all uniquely their own company, right? I mean, Apple's not there just because Apple's an American company. I mean, Apple is just Apple, and they want to be left alone until they, you know, have their things to announce. Yeah, um, and Amazon's kind of like that too. Yeah, almost even more secretive than Apple in many ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, Google, though, I think it's a little, you know, it seems like something they might do, you know, have a big haul and, and you know, either just to promote their Le- Nexus line of stuff or, you know, or even have like a Kumbaya, you know, look at all, you know, have a, every Amazon, you know, major Android phone on display at once and just, you know. Which they did uh, for at least both years that I was at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, they had a, the biggest, most popular booth right. with you know smoothie people making smoothies and gigantic uh, Android phones, and they brought out a bunch of Android developers and gave them little booths and that kind of stuff. Right, and um, maybe they'll do that again at uh, the Mobile World Congress this year, right? Because that's I don't I don't know if they did it last year. Yeah. I wasn't there last year. Uh, I don't know. But, you know, in theory, I think of all those companies, the two that would be least surprising if they did have a big CES presence would be Microsoft and Google. 
Well, especially Microsoft. The new Xbox just came out. Right. And they're, Sony was going to you know, be there. They're buying Nokia, right? Right. And maybe and maybe the the just the fact that they are in the process of trying to buy Nokia and the whole CEO turnover thing kept them out. But that seems weird. Well, and I also think that they really want uh, Windows 8 on tablets to gain traction. I think they would do yeah. anything they could. I think I think you know, I don't know. Is it more important than the phone? I don't know. But both are clearly important. I mean, I think everybody agrees that that, that the root cause of Microsoft's decline in recent years is that they have no traction in either the phone or tablet markets. And, you know, I, I almost hesitate to say that one's more important than the other because I think that they sort of go hand in hand. Um, and even if Office and not Window is the path forward, right. you know, or even the, the cloud services or whatever, uh, that still needs, that. you know, that that's more important for the tablets because Office is not going to, you know, do awesome on Android or something like that. Right. I, you know what? I'm going to take it back. And I'm going to say tablets are more important to Microsoft than phones because uh, for two reasons. For one, they're, they're, phones are already a two-horse race with iOS and Android, where iOS has a stronger position at the top end of the market and Android has a stronger position as the majority um, market share leader. Right and has the uh, the OEM market sewn up, whereas tablets, I feel like all right, iPad is clearly in first place, way stronger in first place than than you know you could argue anybody has in anything other than Windows and PC market share, um, and second place is up for grabs, mm -hmm. right? And I think inevitably there there should be some kind of strong second place, right? Like, you know, even if it's really just ends up being the Mac, what the Mac was to Windows at the height of the PC era, somebody's going to have an alternative to the iPad. And, you know, at, you know, at least I, I feel like Microsoft has a better chance of making Windows and Windows tablets be that than they do of putting a serious dent into either iOS or Android on phones. So I don't know. And I also think it's a little bit more what, you know, shoring up what they're already good at. Like, I feel like tablet sales are coming at the expense mainly of Windows laptop sales. Yeah, so that adds extra urgency. And Microsoft kind of started the whole tablets at CES thing. I mean, if right. you remember, what was it, two weeks or something before Apple, you know, uh, unveiled the iPhone, or iPad, uh Palmer had that weird HP slate thing. Right. When they were calling them slates. Right. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. kind of missed the Balmer keynote at CES. That was like something to look forward to. I, you know, and I'll say it, I, I regret that I never went during that era to see yeah. one. Right. That's like the Bulls with Jordan, you know? Yeah. Now it's too late. It's too late. All right. Let me take a break and we'll get back to that uh, CES talk. But first, let me take a break and tell you about our first sponsor. So happy to have him back on the show. It's our friends at Tonks, T-O-N-X. Tonks goes around the world, selects the best coffee they can find, roast it themselves in Los Angeles, and they ship it out the very next day within 24 hours of roasting. Uh, so what you do is you love coffee, 
you sign up for a subscription from Tonks. And every two weeks or whatever period you sign up for, I'm on a two-week plan, they roast fresh coffee. And within 24 hours, they send it to you within a day or two. I mean, it gets to me. They always send out an email when it goes out, and it gets to me even uh, all the way across the country within a day or two usually. And it is delicious. It is the best coffee uh, I've ever had. But the thing that I love most, one of the things I love most about it is I'm the sort of person who if I find a coffee that I like, I'll just buy that coffee over and over and over week after week after week until I get sick of it or until the store's out of it. Uh, whereas with Tonks, I'm exposed to coffee of all sorts of varieties, literally. I mean, just anything you can imagine if it's good stuff and it's different. Uh, fresh roasted coffee is just so much better than than the stale coffee you find in grocery stores, stuff that was roasted, who knows, weeks, maybe if you're lucky, maybe months ago. So much better. Really makes a difference. Um, what else do they have that's new? They have a new thing called The Frequency. It's their magazine. It's all done by email, uh, but they have a lot of fun coffee-related content. And if you're a member, you get it for free if you want. If you don't want it, you don't get it. But if you like it, it's you know it's a really cool thing. Um, and they've hired like good writers. They have good writers who work for Tonks now. It's not just you know coffee people. It's you know good writers. Uh, so here's what you can do to find out more. Go to this URL: Tonks T O N X dot org slash talk T A L K. And you'll get a free trial. Free trial. You'll receive a free two-ounce bag of their coffee. So you can try Tonks and decide for yourself if it's uh, worthwhile. Honestly, I say just sign up for the subscription already because you're going to love it. But if you doubt me at all, get the free sample. Try it yourself. And then you're going to say, you know what? I should have signed up for the subscription because it's so good. Go to Tonks. My thanks to them for sponsoring the show again. See the other thing Tonks did, Dan? What's that? They have a new promotion where you can go to their website. I forget the URL, but if you go to tonks.org and look for it, uh, I'm sure you'll find it. But they have a uh, – you can use Starbucks gift cards. You type in the number and the code and put it into tonks.org and transfer the full credit of your Starbucks gift card into a, a, a Tonks balance. <laughs> I swear to God, it That's sounds awesome. too good to be true. So anybody out there who got who who really likes coffee and and you know has a taste that goes above what you get at Starbucks, but if you got you know your relatives know you like coffee, quote unquote like coffee, and gave you Starbucks gift cards for the holidays, and you haven't used them because you don't really go to Starbucks, don't throw them out, don't give them away. Go to Tonks. You can put them in there and put all that money into. Uh, a Tonks subscription, which is fantastic. That's that's very smart. It's genius. Absolutely genius. I love it. So they did a thing where they send it out, I guess because they've sponsored my show before. They, they sent me a, a Christmas card, a holiday card, that included a Starbucks gift card. And there was no explanation. I thought it was just sort of a gag. I, I tweeted it and I said it was like the best gag gift that I got. But now knowing that they have this promotion, I realize it wasn't really a gag. It was sort of a setup for this. But anyway, Tonks is so great. I'm drinking it literally right now. Yeah, I think Microsoft should have had a big booth. Yeah. I think for tablets, honestly, I think for phones, because honestly, I mean, Nokia to me, it, it, they're making to me the second best, I don't know about the software, but they're making to me the second most interesting phone hardware uh, today. 
Um, but they're still flailing. They're not really gaining traction. I don't know that they're sinking, but they're not going. You know, and if it's worth Microsoft's money to buy Nokia, or at least their handset division, I don't know. It just seems to me like they ought to start, ought to keep pumping them into the consciousness. You know, keep the keep them visible. I don't know. Trade shows are obviously very expensive, especially. I don't even. I can't even imagine what it costs to have one of those flagship exhibits at like a CES or a big show like that. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's millions of dollars. Yeah. It's gotta be, you know, but, maybe 10 million or something. I don't know. Right. But you're talking about a company that's spending billions right. with a B to buy Nokia. Right. And you know, and just in general, I mean, I'm on marketing and right. all that stuff. So and I, the, the cost of losing the windows, you know, everything they have is everything. It's you know hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. So, as yeah, opposed, strange. I, I I just can't help but think maybe the the CEO turnover is why they didn't do it, just to keep, you know, keep the distractions away. But I don't know. It's a, maybe a sign of paralysis, especially with that the new Xbox out and trying to build a you know, developer ecosystem around that, and and you know, be part of the um, all the. 4k tvs that are out you know how cool would it have been to be to be able to play a couple xbox games on one of those things um there was one article i think also on the verge about how there's basically no 4k content to show off except netflix had some so they were you know being demoed on all the new tvs which is smart yeah netflix had a big presence uh without having a big or maybe even any exhibit space themselves um Reed Hastings was just he he just was at every single event for anybody related to, to TV. And it seems like like I would have to say if not the single biggest one of the big, you know, count them on one hand themes of this year's CES was 4K TV sets. Definitely. And like you said, the big question is well what do you well i've actually i think there's two big questions for 4k tv sets one though first one is where are you going to get 4k content because there's zero point to it without 4k content and so far the answer like you said is netflix but even there they can't just magically make stuff that wasn't shot 4k be 4k um but I know that they're going to, you know, the one thing they can control are their own shows, and they have, you know, House of Cards, which they're going to have available in 4K. Yeah. Which, I guess the new season, which starts next month? Yeah, a couple, few weeks from now. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's one of the beauties of vertical integration. Have, uh, have control over that sort of stuff. Uh, 4K is interesting to me. I'm, I'm, Kind of impressed by how inexpensive some of the supposed prices are going to be for those things. Yeah, uh, I'm very frightened as to how much worse the wire is going to look than it already does now. Right. I'm, I'm, I think I'll have to rewatch it once more before I upgrade TVs or something like that. I guess it depends what it was shot on. Maybe the wire is sold. I, I would. The I wire would... was shot in. I looked it up this morning. It was shot in SD four by three. There's, there will never be oh, wow. an HD remastering. Wow, but didn't they shoot on film? Couldn't they? This I don't know. I the whatever article I read yeah. that there's no chance to get that uh, to to go back and and turn that back into. Uh, I don't think so. HD. 
Because you know, a lot of the the shows during that period, like the first few seasons were four by three, and then you know something like Entourage or something like that. Yeah. And I think even The Sopranos, like the last several seasons, were in HD. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, there was a shift kind of halfway through. But The Wire, all everything was always SD four three four three. Hmm. Major disappointment. Yeah, and it was sort of right at the tail end of that, you know. Whereas if you go yeah. back a little further, and you know, like one of my favorite shows from the '90s was uh, NYPD Blue. Oh yeah, uh, great show, especially the first few seasons. Um, but it, it it doesn't break your heart that it that it's four to three standard definition because it was the '90s. What do you expect? Whereas The Wire, it it just feels like was just a wee bit, a few years too early. Uh, here's the thing. I think that the bigger problem facing 4K is how many people sit, have a couch far enough away from their TV and have room for a big enough TV where 4K actually looks better, right? And you get into these arguments, you know, like the, the Apple's definitions of a retina display of, you know, it, it's distance from the screen, you know, and, and some math about the pixel size. But there is a certain point where you can't discern it. Right, and when you went from an old four three standard def glass picture tube TV to a flat screen, you know, plasma or LCD high def screen, it, you know, you unless you had some kind of vision impairment or didn't have your glasses on, it everybody had the same reaction, which is wow, this looks way better. I don't know that when I first got a HD. I don't know if I've talked about it on this show, but. I even would watch skiing because it looked so good. Right. It's like, this is crazy. Yeah. I remember and stuff like uh, golf and tennis with these little tiny balls. And it's like all yeah. of a sudden. You hockey. Can, yeah. Hockey was a big one. Hockey, I think. God, hockey was like unwatchable on standard def. I yeah. never understood how people could watch hockey. You couldn't see. Well, unless po- you had Fox tracks uh, right. glowing. <laughs> right. Which was awful. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that 4K for most people is going to look better. And I don't, you know, I think that's the problem the TV industry, TV set industry has is everybody spent a lot of money to upgrade and go to high def flat panel displays. And an awful lot of money was spent in what, the last 15 years, 10, 15 years. years. I got mine nine years ago. Yeah, I think we bought ours around the same time. I don't know. No, no, not that long. I think I got mine in like 2006. Um, you know, and yeah, that and was right as they were getting cheaper. A lot of my- people spent a lot of money, and I st- still love my 2006 TV. I mean, I really think it looks great. Uh, yes, yeah, I think it's gonna be one of those things where you know it, it will just gradually replace the HD components. And if you are buying a mid range or high end TV, it will be 4K. Uh, if you're not, it'll probably be 1080p. The way today, you know, you still buy a 1080i or 720p TV if you want to spend 300 bucks, and if you want to spend seven, eight hundred bucks, you get 1080p. Yeah, I just don't know that it's going to really help the industry, you know, spur sales. I am glad though. I feel like the good. No, I don't think it will. The good news to me, as someone who really despises 3D, is that the whole 3D thing, which is like what the last two years they've been they were pushing yeah. 3D TV sets, and I just oh man, if I could have just paid a genie, you know, 
to give me a wish and hope that a technology fails, it would be 3D TVs. Because I, I can't even imagine the world where, you know, movies are all 3D. Whether you need glasses or not, I, I 3D really gets to me every time I see it. Aren't you kind of happy, though, that, that the good guys won on that one? Yeah, I am glad. You could see a, a technology lose over, you know, the course of a few years and, and feel good about that. Yeah, I feel like common sense prevailed. Yeah. Like, no, we don't want it. And we certainly don't want to wear freaking goggles and right. stuff like that. Um, and I don't, you know, I think it was not because 3D was a good idea. It was because the TV manufacturers wanted to sell new TVs to people who already bought flat panel TVs. And so it didn't work. Or so, wanted to upsell, you know, the the 3D TVs as being right. a, a significantly more expensive product than... The flat panel. Right. As opposed to 4K, which I can in theory get behind because more pixels to me is always better. And so it's definitely, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not 100% sold. It's going to take off because I don't know that people are going to be able to discern the difference unless they can get a big enough, you know, 60, 70 inch screen. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know about your household, but I still come home sometimes and, and see that the SD version of, of a channel is being watched. Right. <laughs> and that no one could tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I I tweeted about it over the Christmas break, but my wife had like a day where she was like Jonas was playing Minecraft and I was up quote unquote working in the office and she just had like a relaxing day watching movies and um it was like three or four of like her favorite movies that nobody else likes came on, like House Guest. <laughs> right? She loves House Guest. Anytime House Guest comes on, she watches. It's a terrible movie. Uh, God bless Phil Hartman. I wish we still had him, but I mean you know, yes. boy, that that movie is it's rough. But she, and, and I, you know, I'd come down and get coffee and stuff, and every everything she was watching all day long was standard def. I, it, it drove me nuts. Maybe something like that is is better. I don't know. <laughs> I would pay more money, and this is stupid because it doesn't make any sense. I would pay more money to Comcast to just take all the standard def channels out of our lineup. Just get them off. So that there's nothing we can't watch standard def. I think if you dig deep enough in the uh, settings on your cable box, you can override the SD somehow. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't tried that yet. Uh, well, another thing I, I'm wondering about is is the bandwidth stuff. I mean, if if 4K video is you know two to four times more bandwidth, um, a you know is is it going to stream? choppily is it is it going to be watchable and b at what point does time warner cable or comcast or whoever say okay well you hit your 200 gigs limit now now you're done right we're gonna start charging you for it or something right, like that right because they're not really all that much in favor of you watching tv over ip exactly <laughs> by which i mean not in favor at all <laughs> right um yeah that's a good question and, and wireless is not gonna fix that <laughs> no Definitely not. Especially now with uh, I, I've, I saw a couple of reports this week that it, it, with compression, and I don't know if they're using H two sixty five or or what, what the uh, Kodak is, but that they've I think like in a lot of the Netflix stuff because Netflix actually is putting the rubber to the road and doing it, mm -hmm. that it's about 15, 15 megabits a second. Something like that is what it requires. Now, I only, I, you know, like when I run speed tests, when, I, when, when my stuff's working well, I only get about 20, 21, 22 down. Yeah, same. So, and I still can't load YouTube videos half the time. Yeah, 15's under that, but it, 
it's so much so close to it though that it it almost requires optimal you know optimal you know good weather and just a perfect you know hope that my neighbors aren't doing it too yeah which is why netflix actually is um at least publicly the, one of the the fiercest companies in terms of publicly uh praising and 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 rating and ranking ISPs in terms of their quality, yeah. which I find kind of interesting, and lobbying, you know, for for things like, uh, ne- you know, net neutrality and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, let me take a break here and do the second sponsor. It's our another old friend of the show, uh, Squarespace. Squarespace, you guys know, and they're the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, you get a free trial and 10% off your first purchase by going to squarespace.com. And when you sign up, there's no special URL. Just go to squarespace.com, look and see what they have. And you want to use offer code VESPER, V-E-S-P-E-R, and then they'll know you came from from this show. Um, I, I just can't say enough how easy Squarespace is to make your own website and to customize it. Whether you are the sort of person who wants to get in and customize it at the code level, which you can do, even starting with their great selection of templates, or if you really want to do it or don't even have the know-how to do it at the code level and want to do it visually through drag and drop. Uh, it's it's not just a hosting service. It really is a, a, a visual design tool for making, you know, controlling the way your website looks. They're constantly improving their platform. Uh, They have great, amazing, downright amazing tech support uh, that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it starts at just $8 a month. And that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year or more. Uh, Great templates to choose from. Unbelievably low pricing to start. Great service. they even have stuff like e-commerce. So you can hook up a store and charge money over the internet for your service, your products and services, uh, which is like the biggest pain in the ass in the history of, of uh, making your own website. Trust me. So go to squarespace.com. Um, and I really, really thank them for supporting the talk show. Everybody, you know, longtime listeners of the show know how, how, how much support they've thrown this way. Use this code, VESPER. That's sort of an in-joke, I guess. Um, they, you know, That's the way they're, instead of custom URLs, they're using um, sort of in-joke style coupon codes um, to track it. But if you use that code when you sign up, they'll know you came from here. Uh, so my thanks to them. Where were we? What were we talking about? As uh, 4K bandwidth. Ah, uh, 4K bandwidth, yeah. And so Apple's, uh, you know, obviously we said not at the show, much, much rumored to be, you know, possibly working on some kind of new TV thing, whether it is a full TV set or, you know, a, a big step forward in Apple TV. Um, I wonder how 4K, what their stance on that is, you know, like I know there's a lot of people who think, well, that's what, I, you know, people who, you know, the, the Gene Munsters of the world who think that, <laughs> you know. Right, that's what Apple's been waiting for. Right, been waiting for 4K. I don't know about that. I don't know about that at all. Yeah, I, I would. I would say no. Uh, I mean, t- I guess you know. Personally, I have kind of been waiting 
to upgrade my TV in case Apple were to have come out with one by now. Um, you know, when it breaks, I'm going to replace it with whatever's out there. But I could see a lot of people buying an Apple TV because it came out, and therefore, you know, if it were 4K, that's how they would get. That's how they would justify getting a 4K TV. But I think that. That's not what's been holding them back. No. Um, and but I also wonder, you know, because Apple controls a lot of the content that comes to Apple TV because they have, you know, they, they sell and rent movies and TV shows. But I honestly wonder how, how much control they have over getting that stuff in 4K format. I don't think it's any. It's not like they've got the original negatives for the films and can scan them at 4K resolution. You know, it's up to the studios to provide, you know, the, you know, I, I don't know that, that just because, you know, so much of Apple TV content comes from iTunes, I don't know that that gives Apple much control over getting the iTunes library into 4K. I don't know, though. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. And how did it work with HD? Didn't it start with, did it start with movies or TV shows? I don't remember. I don't know that the you know it was, but it wasn't all at once. They couldn't just no, flip it was a like switch one by one too. Right. Um, yeah, well, obviously they don't uh, they don't make the content, so they can't just go out on their own and do it. And uh, it seems like another opportunity for the studios to try to get something out of Apple, um, you know, before they hand over the even higher res stuff, uh, especially with that whole ultraviolet thing they have on their own. So, yeah. And Apple, you know, big picture is often, they'll often make great leaps forward with things like being like the retina display on the iPhone four in 2010 was a huge leap forward in resolution over every other phone on the market. Uh, you know, literally double the, the resolution you know, in one dimension as the previous generation of iPhones and, you know, 300 and some DPI instead of 100 and some DPI. Um, but then ever since, they've let it go. And now it went from, you know, and now there's other competing phones, you know, from on the Android side that have 400 and some pixels per inch. And I feel like with, you know, with Apple, it's like they'll make a big leap forward if they think there's a practical reason for it, right? And the original iPhone going retina was so clearly, oh, man, this looks so much better. Especially, you know, everything looked better. Whereas I feel like going from 300 and some to 400 some DPI on a phone is you're just wasting battery, you know, that the, it's not worth Especially it. Especially with a horrible Android mm -hmm. UI. Right. Yeah, it's like, you know, see those wonderful Roboto fonts yeah. re rendered in all their glory. Like, uh, And I almost think that from an Apple perspective that 1080p is that sweet spot of looks really good in most typical household viewing scenarios, you know, in terms of screen size versus distance from screen. Uh, well, this was actually, I still uh, think it from there's precedent for this too. Um, I actually wrote a story about this for Forbes in what, 2006 or 2007 when, at, when iTunes first started, uh, selling movies and Amazon first started selling movies, they were both around the same time. And what Amazon did is sold you a, 
made you download, I want to say, two copies of the movie. One of them was a really big file and looked good on your computer. And the other one was a really small file. Or maybe it was Apple that did that. Yeah, I think Apple did that. I think that was Apple. I seem to remember that. Maybe Amazon had... I don't remember. Anyway, all right. Well, (laughs) I'll have to find the article. I think it was Apple. uh, Apple did do that too, so... Yeah. Um, Anyway. But it didn't make sense to have a big, you know, 720p or 1080p file to show on your standard def screen. Made no sense. All right, here's the article. Apple... Basically, Apple's total file size was smaller than Amazon's, and the question I, you know, I was writing about was whether, um, yeah, Amazon had two files: a large version for a computer and TV, and a smaller one for your like Rio <laughs> MP3 player or something like that. Um, for watching movies on your Galaxy Gear. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh. Yeah, Amazon was doing 720 pixel with an an Apple said DVD quality, you know, 640 pixels. Uh, anyway, big big picture. This is Apple saying we're okay not having the highest resolution possible because there are better trade offs like download speed that that make this better. Um, so I could see the same thing happening here where they don't go with the most pixels possible on a TV, but instead one that will, you know, kind of hit the sweet spot in terms of bandwidth and content library and and all that sort of stuff. I mean, how how lame would it be if Apple shipped a 4K TV and literally nothing was was available in 4K? Like, they wouldn't even do that. Right. You know, everything you have looks like shit on our new TV. Well, it would look like 1080p. I don't think 1080p is going to look worse on a 4K TV set. You know, it's. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Yeah. Well, the way that non-retina apps look terrible on a retina screen, but maybe the the difference is is imperceptible from six feet away or whatever. Right. Because if it's because I think it's more like with like the Retina MacBook Pros, where you have those scaled sizes to simulate higher resolutions, and they still look fine. Yeah. Because you're still only. You're talking about pixels that are so small, even at the simulated size, right? The simulated pixel is bigger than the native pixel of the display, but that simulated size is still so small that you're, it looks good to your eyes. Whereas when you upscale a non-Retina um, iPhone app on Retina, those non-Retina virtual pixels are, are big, and you Huge, can yeah. see them. So I... Th- I'm nearly certain. I mean, and, and I'm sure I'll hear otherwise from people out there, but I would bet that 1080p content looks like 1080p content on a 4K display. Yeah, and things like... No uh, worse than it would on an equivalent size 1080p yeah. thing, unless you get real close, which is, you know... Right, which is not what happens in, right. for a TV. Um, for a monitor, that's a different story. But but what's the point uh, of of powering all those pixels and paying for all those pixels to watch 1080p when you could have just spent less money on a 1080p native TV set. Exactly. Uh, th- now there are things like, you know, if, if they have a gaming app store, you know, with vector based gaming artwork, maybe that does look appreciably different on a, on a 4k TV. I, I don't know. 
Um, well, I guess we'll have to go to CES next yeah, year. Yeah, I just don't think fork. I don't think 4K is the factor. I no, really I don't, don't think so. I, you know, my 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 thinking on this, and you know, just from not having any real information, but just kind of reading stuff over the years, is that Apple really wanted to have some sort of subscription service that was just dramatically better and more interesting than a cable TV package um, and couldn't get the rights for that and therefore kind of drop the ball on a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's that, that's the perception I have. Yeah. I wonder, too, how much of it is still fueled by what may well just be a throwaway line in the the, the uh, Steve Jobs biography yeah. by uh, Walter Isaacson that uh, that uh, something something about TV and that Jobs said I've cracked it and that's it yeah you know who who even knows you know what the hell that means I still I'm still half convinced at least if not fifty one percent convinced that. The Apple TV we have today is the that's Apple's TV plans, and that you know they'll just come out. You know, the, it's getting to the point where it's overdue for a new version, but that it's just going to be another ninety nine dollar box with maybe higher resolution and a better remote. I've said this so many times, and I still think it's the most likely scenario for how they go forward that they just keep selling ninety nine dollar set top boxes. Yeah, and I'm sure you know as a company that makes things with screens like i'm sure they've tested out computers in every screen size imaginable uh they already make 30 inch displays where they did right uh so i'm sure they've tried out you know making a tv set or something like that but making that into a product is a is a whole different story um I, i do i love my apple tv though i i find myself using it much more than even I did a year ago. So, only ha- I really hope they do more with it. And, and it, you know, it's one of those things where they they add maybe one channel every few weeks, so you don't kind of notice it. But if you remember, even a year ago, they were like, you know, they didn't even fill up the first screen, and now there's a lot of stuff on there. Yeah, no, most I've, of it I'm not watching, but I think they had a okay. pretty good year of adding content to Apple TV. I really do. Um, yeah, I, I think it suggests that maybe they're starting to. Uh, well, I. I I had read, I think it was HBO, you know, had even admitted publicly that they made their app themselves. So it sounds like Apple has some sort of very simple toolkit that they're letting other people use now to make those channels. Right. Yeah. That to me could be the, um, you know, my best guess for what he meant by I cracked it. And it's, you know, to, you know, maybe some kind of next generation thing, Bluetooth for the remotes and, uh, so that maybe you could even have like gaming remotes and a real app store SDK and let people just, you know, put apps on their Apple TV the same way they do their iPhone and iPad. But that would work with any TV. A lot, a lot easier to distribute those tiny boxes than a right. massive you know, I see whenever one of my neighbors gets a TV, I see that massive cardboard box on the sidewalk. Yeah. It's like, the one TV set at CES this year that did get a little bit of my attention, it stood out from the others, was LG because they announced one that runs WebOS, which I had yeah, forgotten. I had forgotten 
that they'd purchased. They like purchased WebOS from, uh, I guess HP. Uh, what's what's the thinking behind that? Is it just that it's easy to write apps for it because it's sure. HTML and JavaScript? I, I guess I don't know. I mean, and it's obviously the original, the you know, the WebOS as we knew it from the Palm pre phone and the what was their tablet called? The Playbook was a you know iOS style glass touch screen interface and obviously your tv set is not a touch screen um but it seems like they kind of kept it you know so it's not really web os as we knew it but it's web os based similar to how you know at a low level technically apple tv the one you buy today is running ios a version of ios it's just not it's a totally different interface yeah, I actually did a, a research report about the various development platforms for smart TVs, and it's it's horrible. It's way worse than Android. Like it's almost every model year has a different SDK, and you have to test them like crazy. It, it, it takes months or even years to make it a smart TV app for a lot of uh, manufacturers. Right. And, they're and they all have different, different SDKs and they're all using different technology and chipsets and all this crap and it's a lot of low-level stuff. So it's just a disaster. So if, if WebOS is like hey, just you know, make HTML and JavaScript and you're all set, yeah. that's like a huge advantage over whatever you know, Vizio or Samsung has been forcing people to do. Yeah, and that could be a big advantage for Apple because Apple not only has tons of developers now with iOS, uh, you know, because obviously, I mean, I think it would be almost shocking if the SDK were anything other than, you know, Objective-C and the Cocoa um, APIs, you know, but optimized for TV. Um, but they also, it's not just that they have developers, but that they have... I mean, let's go all the way back to 1990 and say, you know, or 89 and say, you know, um, you know, go back to next and say they've got 20 to 25 years of experience making a developer platform that evolves over time so that it's not, you know, it is familiar that you, you know, for anybody who's written an iOS app or a Mac app, the presumed Apple TV SDK would be pretty familiar and that as it evolves year over year over year, it's not going to break it year over year, and that you're writing an app in 2014, and then in 2015 it's going to be broken. You know, it, it would be stable, a stable platform that evolves over time, which I think is a big difference compared to like what you're saying about the smart TVs on the market today. Yeah, and... Uh... Also, a, a platform that has been smartly designed for the type of equipment it's going to run on. Yeah. You know, whereas, even even the attempts to kind of shoehorn Android into a TV, you know, I don't know how I don't know how well that's working. All right, and it is the sort of thing where even if they come out with, and I think you know, obviously it would be the thing that would slow adoption the most is if. If Apple's Apple TV of the future is a whole TV set, the whole thing at once, you have to buy a new TV set, but it's all built in. I think that would slow adoption because obviously the price would be higher and it would rule out anybody who says, well, I just bought a TV X number of years ago. I'm not replacing it yet, even for a cool one from Apple. Um, even if Apple, you know, their market share was very low, like two, 3% of the whole US TV market. 
that whole 2-3% would be on their app store. And even at 2-3% of all households, clearly, I think that would make it the, the most popular platform for developers already, even with just 2-3% market share because the whole thing is so fractured. Especially if they you know, made it open. Like The, the trouble with stuff like the Xbox SDK is that they're still very tightly controlling. Right. Right, that's uh, maybe my I, biggest. I, I also can't see that being the only way to to run Apple TV apps. Like I could see that being the preferred way. Like maybe the Apple TV has, uh, you know, you don't need to have some sort of other input for the whatever remote control they have or something like that. But I, I can't see them forcing you to buy it a whole television to. Yeah, I've, I've thought the same thing too. That even if they come out with a TV set, they'd still have set top boxes that you could. Put into other TV sets, but then you get into questions of you know latency and and if you have apps that depend upon the the lesser latency of the native you know the the whole shebang built into the Apple one by itself, how do they run on the one that's hooked up by HDMI and has a additional latency or something like that? I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, I agree with you though. I don't think that they would do it that way. Did you uh, did you see any any smartwatches you like this week? No, not at all. Although wearables totally seem to be the second big theme of the um, show, especially I think. I mean, it seemed to me from my uh, the coverage I saw sitting at home, wrist wearables. Some of them yeah. watches, some of them more like the uh, maybe by quantity, more of them more like a Nike Fuel Band, like a you know mm-hmm. plain band around your wrist. I got people upset, I guess, when I called out the Pebble Steel as being ugly. Oh, it's horrible! Right? I don't. It reminds me it, of like the like the old um, Casio watches that my uncle Stash had in like the early nineties. Like yeah, just, and you can still buy those at like American Apparel, and it's sort of like American Apparel style retro hip. Like where yeah. they'll, they'll also sell you a pair of like uh, you know like the like the the eyeglasses my dad was wearing in nineteen eighty two. Right. Uh, the metal bar across the top, but it's almost to me. It's more almost like a knockoff of those Casios. Just like the, yeah. the integration of the band to the watch face, it just seems really, really clunkily done. And I, 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 I like the the first ones more. I don't have one, but it, the, I do have one. I have yeah. one, so I do have some experience. You know, speaking of it, but like I wrote on Daring Fireball, at least the other one, the original one. To me, it's true to itself. Is it a beautiful watch? No, but it's to me, it's no uglier than any other digital watch. It's a slightly awkward form factor, maybe, but you know, it's to support its what's that called? A portrait landscape display. I I think it's a big step backwards, in my opinion, because I feel like they've concentrated, like, and effectively from everything I've read. The like the screen resolution is exactly the same. The screen technology is the same. The insides are the same. Like they their like effort over the last year has been to 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 make these metal watches and metal and leather bands, as opposed to improving the thing that I think they should have been working on, which is the software and the. I know they have a two point software release coming too, but it it's not a better computing device. It's just supposedly a better a more attractive watch, but to me it's not. It's really horrid. 
it's like if, if the the juju people had spent that whole year making the the case look better because that's what was going to make it <laughs> right more competitive against the, the inevitable iPad. Right, and the thing that got me, and no offense to the Pebble people, and I'm rooting for them. I hope Pebble becomes a long term success in terms of you know who I I would love to see a pe- company like Pebble grow and become a success. I just feel like this generation is a step backwards and that they've lost their way uh or they've lost their eyes off the ball but they said it's like pebble came out at ces and said we've made our watches look better and all the tech press was like pebble has made their watches look better because that's what they said as opposed to actually looking at them and just saying man these watches are ugly yeah uh so here's the next annoying trend for the next year maybe forward uh is tech companies like the the nerdiest of nerdy tech companies uh pretending that that they have friends in the fashion industry uh case in point this invitation my wife who is a fashion journalist got inviting her from intel to the ces wearable technology briefing for an intimate session on what's next for intel in fashion This is a microchip company, semiconductor company, inviting fashion people to hear what they're doing in fashion. I I can't even imagine how awesome that was. I think my favorite part of that invitation is the word next, as though there have been (laughs) previous Intel, as opposed to Intel's previous forays into fashion, like when they took... uh, Pentium 3 chips that failed testing on the assembly line and turned them into uh, necklaces. When they added YKK zippers to the bunny suit, right. that was that's what they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, you know, of course, you know, Apple did just hire the CEO of Burberry, so that's cool, but you're, this is just going to be on and on and on about uh, what was the one I read? Uh, this department store called opening ceremony is doing something with some i don't remember some wearable tech stuff oh it's all this wearable tech stuff oh we got fashion people it's gonna be okay but yeah i feel like uh i don't know i feel like different people obviously have different tastes and of course no doubt zero doubt in my mind of course there's some people who think the new pebble watches look either just fine or even good of course but I think in the mass market, I feel very, very confident betting that they are going to go over like lead balloons. Uh, and number two, they cost 250 bucks, which I know by the standards of uh, like a Rolex or something like that is low. But that's, you know, I, it's probably more than, the, you know, a lot more than the average person has ever spent on a watch in their life. It's, you know, it's, it's a decent chunk of change. I mean, it's the same amount of money you spend on an iPod. Or something like that. Um, and w- I feel like Pebble gets a pass from a lot of the tech, either the tech press or tech fans who read the tech press because they're a little guy and they're mm-hmm. sort of an upstart. But Yeah, Kickstarter, success right. story. But 250 stuff. bucks is 250 bucks, And if they're charging $250 for a consumer to buy this gadget – it should be judged by the same standards as, say, Apple or Amazon or yeah, Kindle. S- Samsung or anybody. It's the same 250 bucks. And, you know, if Apple came out with a watch that looked like Pebble, it 
it would and should cause their stock to collapse. It, it should cause like a 50% decrease in the price of the stock because it would have to make you think that if they came out with a watch and it looked like the pebble steel, I would say the company is doomed. And every yeah, I, I was it. wrong. Steve Jobs was the entire company. Uh, they're yep. doomed. Uh, Johnny Ive is a fraud. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that means that Pebble is doomed. I just think it means, though, that Pebble still has a lot of work ahead of them to get there because you can, you can excuse Pebble as an upstart for having something. But I still feel like it's up to the tech press and the critics – to call it as they see it and as it is. Right. Yeah. If it's a, you know, an early adopter, you know, nerd, nerd toy and that these guys are basically a, a you know, a, a lab upstart. Cool. That's awesome. But it's being pitched as if it should be a, some sort of mainstream thing. Right. And, and I don't think it's there. At I all. don't see it. Right. I don't see it. I think the fitness trackers kind of sort of are if you're into that, you know, and, and I was thinking yes. about that this week. It never really occurred to me before, but everybody knows, everybody who follows this stuff knows that Tim Cook has worn a Nike fuel band for a couple of years at least. And, and is on the board of Nike. Right. Um, I can't remember any Apple executive publicly using technology from any other company ever. And I know now Apple and Nike have a kind of relationship, and I know that you know, like the 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 integration with the iPods, the what's that thing? It's like a dingus you put in your yeah, the, sneaker, the Nike Plus, yeah, whatever it's called. But there's like a thing you can buy to put in your sneaker. And when they announced it, I remember thinking like, so is is Jobs going to wear Nike sneakers instead yeah. of his New Balance? And he did. Like for the one event, he had like a pair of Nikes on. Uh, so it's but not. Then he went back. Yeah, it was just for that event, but. Uh, I and I and I I always wonder about that. Like if you know, and I think about some of the stupidest things, but because I, I feel like nobody else does. Like I'd love to get the story on that. Like, did somebody have to go up to Steve Jobs and say, "Hey, Steve, uh, it would be a lot better if you wore a pair of Nikes." And like, what was his reaction, or what did Jobs himself say? Give me a pair of Nikes to wear for this thing. Yeah, did he demo them? I don't remember. I forget exactly how it went, but it was when some was kind that? of. I don't even remember. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I'm going to guess it was like 90 or 2005, hmm. 2004, 2005. I'll have to look it up. Uh, but I can't, you know, I, I, after that, it's not like Jobs was on stage wearing Nike shoes. And he, you know, certainly, uh, you know, obviously if he's not wearing the Nike shoes, he didn't have the Nike tracker in him. Um, I can't remember anybody else wearing. Probably also like not a fitness uh, <laughs> hobbyist. No, I don't think so. Um, but Tim Cook, Cook is, isn't he like, yeah, know, he's kind a, of a jock. Yeah. Or if not a jock, he's like a, a, a hiker, a bicycle. Yeah. I think he might, you know, do like mountain oh, biking man. and stuff like that. Uh, definitely a fitness aficionado. Um, and like you said, he's on the Nike board, right? Yes. Which has always been weird to me, especially yeah. recently. Like, is he pulling an Eric Schmidt? I don't know. I, and it's it would seem extraordinarily out of character for him to pull a Nike uh, an Eric Schmidt. Yeah. Which would be to unveil like a Nike plus or a Nike fuel yeah. band killer. Yeah. I, the, I the Apple gas uh, gas watch or whatever. Right. Gas gas band. And it's not just because he's on the board and the, you know and that he wears one but they they even specifically called out Nike when they announced the um the iPhone 5S with the um, 
the M7 coprocessor, you know, and that it's not just for the iPhone to use, but third-party apps can tap into it, and that Nike was the one they called out, uh, you know, and that app has shipped, and that Nike has an app that can use the data from, you know, that they've they've uh, Apple's stance on that has sort of been that you know that it's there for everybody to use, not just them. Yeah, so you know, and I don't know whether they work together on something like that. I don't, I don't know. Well, uh, I if uh, it's you not know, like Apple's going to make shoes, so right. if you need shoes for something, then where I mean, wearable stuff definitely. I mean, as technology, as everything shrinks, you know, everything from cameras to to batteries to the CPUs. I mean, wearable is obviously a you know future direction for computers. Um, but what are they going to do, right? What's you know I put it in uh, Clayton Christensen slash Horace Deju terms. <laughs> what's the job to be done? What are you hiring these wearable devices to do? And it seems like the one thing that's been a success so far is stuff like the Fuel Band and Fitbit where you're hiring these devices to track what you've done all day and tell you how far you've gone and, you know, to help you track your goals for burning calories throughout the day. But that's a niche. I, and I feel like it's already being satisfied. I feel like anybody who just wants to know how far they've walked, uh, you know, how many stairs they've climbed, you can already buy a device that at a reasonable price that works really well and integrates, you know, with, with your computer so you can store the data and stuff like that. Um, I don't, and, and they're building it into the iPhone, right? With right. That chip. So it's already built into the iPhone, yeah. you know, and I, I just don't see that as a market that's ripe for disruption, right? It just doesn't seem like there's any kind of problem with those devices. If all you want to do is track fitness, they're, they seem to work really well and be pretty elegant as opposed to the pre iPhone smartphone market which was a mess and uh, the phones had terrible interfaces and confusing and, you know, everybody, uh, you know, didn't know how to use their phones and it was just ripe for something like the iPhone to come in. I just don't see that in the fitness tracking. That's not to say, again, Apple, you know, surely is working on wearable stuff, tiny little things, but I don't think a fitness tracker is, is that. Yeah. It could be I, something that does fitness tracking as part of, a dozen other things, but that's, not that's a dedicated an app right. on, the, on the device. Just as you know, iPod is also an app, but whatever right. the music, you know, the way. So yeah, I don't know. And then you know, what is the job that you're hiring it for? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like that is just it was not answered by anybody at CES. I didn't see anything that makes me think, "Wow, that's that's any kind of important step forward in this." I guess another thing I was... But, but did you see the, the, the wearable thing that records uh, audio around you for 90 minutes on loop or something? No, 90 like seconds, I think. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like a 60... <laughs> it's like a 60-second continue... I forget the name of it. I saw it on it's The Verge, creepy I creepy quarter? No, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember. Something well, like that. it's interesting because I do feel like that's, that's inevitably where some of this stuff is going, right? The idea is you get oh, sure. 60 seconds of recording at all times and it just drops off at you know 61 seconds ago just drops off at the end of the buffer but then if something has happened within the last minute that you want to save you hit a button and it it saves that audio so if you know you know it's the audio equivalent of capturing that photo that right. you know that you're you're watching happen as you take your phone out of your pocket right 
and I remember I forget who linked to it, but like one of the one of the questions on the website is, "Is it legal?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is half funny in the creepy sense, and half sort of you know we're gonna have to face this because just think like if you just go forward, I, ten years is probably even too much, but ten years from now, it it the storage on our phone sized devices is going to be so much bigger and hopefully battery life will be so much better that doing something like recording a 60 minute buffer of audio, you know, would not strain the device at all. And so why not? Like, how do you know if every, if somebody isn't recording it and, you know, and, and project forward with something like Google glass that people wear on, you know, as eyeglasses with a much smaller camera and heads up display so that you don't see it per se, you know, like what happens if you can't see the camera in somebody's glasses? You have no way to distinguish between someone who's wearing non-smart glasses and regular glasses, and it has the storage that it can just store a 60-minute buffer at all times, so that you don't have to record in advance. You can just decide, hey, this, this last five minutes has been sensational. You know, I just saw... I don't know, a cab burst into flames on the street. I've got footage of it. I didn't hit, remember to hit record, but I can just say right now, hey, save the last five minutes. Yeah, I just right? got into a really great argument with a drunk guy. I wish I could post that to SoundCloud or something like that. Right. I'm not entirely comfortable about that. I don't think it's a great idea, but I, I'm... It's happening. Right. There's no, you know, exactly. can't escape it. Exactly. That's, That's my main point. It's the way it's going to be, so... We kind of have to come to grips with it. Yeah, and figure out how you know what's going to be considered acceptable, and and for better and worse, like the, the, all those Russian dash cam videos are yeah. awesome. They've <laughs> way improved my life. So, <laughs> you know, there's there's absolutely an upside to this. So, <laughs> it's it's not a separate device, but it's uh, it's an app on my Apple. You know, whatever. Yeah, I guess that's probably the best. You know, in in a weird way, those Russian dash cams, which apparently everybody—I I guess you have to have like your insurance even mandates it in Russia because something like that. Yeah. So much insurance fraud and problems in Russia and uh, in, in you know car insurance that everybody has these always-on dash cams that are always recording when your car's on, and so yeah, like you said, you it, YouTube is just full of all sorts of fantastic footage that never would have been captured before it's almost like that's the canary in the coal mine like the the future of everything like at some point everything will be like russian dash cam everything that happens will be if if it was oh i wish we could put that on youtube you'll have it to put on youtube well shit did you see the the plane crash uh today you know some some guy had his uh what are the gopro camera on while he was in a plane crash and you know survived but there's a youtube video of it is that true yeah, it was, it was maybe you uh, maybe you woke up late, but huh. when I was looking at Twitter this morning, that's what everyone was retweeting. Um, but yeah, crazy, you know, that's the new normal is that that everything is recorded, so even scary stuff we'll be able to see. Yeah, didn't really see a lot in that direction at CES. I kind of was wondering if we were going to see uh, a bunch of Google Glass sort of. Um, you know, heads-up display type things, and it didn't seem like anybody had anything like that. I thought I saw one, but it was just very, you know, even more primitive than Google Glass. Like yeah, it was, a, it was almost more like an Oculus Rift 
sort yeah. of thing. Like, you know, you had big, and, and I saw somebody else had one that was meant for, um, safety workers. It was like a, maybe it's the one you're talking about safety glasses with a built-in heads up display. Yeah. I think that might've been it. And you know, which I think is a fine idea. Uh, somebody on Twitter, um, like was like, and you know, Gruber said Google Glass will never be useful. But I, I think something like safety glasses with a built-in heads-up display, well, that's great because if you're already wearing safety glasses, you're not concerned about you know fashion at all. It's a practical <laughs> – you know, you're in a practical situation. So why not have a heads-up display if it could help you, you know, in terms of um, you know doing the job that you're doing to have the safety glasses on in the first place? Right. If you're, you know, like a chemist or something like that, you can have, you know, the yeah, step by step instructions for the experiment. Construction worker or something, uh, building a building, and you want to reference the plans. Right. Or consult about the supplies. You know, do I need, you know, or the, or the IKEA instructions? <laughs> <laughs> right. But it would be cool. Like if you're a construction worker and you need more, I don't know, nails that you right. could bring it up on your heads up display and you know, use gestures or buttons on the side and, and, and then have them sent up to you or something like that without having to, you know, take a phone out of your pocket or something like that. That'd be great. But I didn't see anything like that. No. And that's one of those things where, you know, maybe they're there hiding in the, in the corner, but no one, <laughs> yeah. no one posted. I don't know. So someday I'll have to get out there and, and find the weird stuff. Yeah. Let me take a, a one last break here and thank our third sponsor before we finish up the show. And our third sponsor, and it's a trifecta of longtime sponsors of the show, uh, is our friends at An Event Apart. An Event Apart is the conference for web and designers, uh, for people who make websites. It's an intensely educational two-day learning exp uh, session for passionate practitioners of standards-based web design. It was founded by web visionaries Eric Meyer and Jeffrey Zeldman. I mean, Jeffrey Zeldman's name is all over the web standards movement. Uh, the before and after of what it was like to make websites from when the web standards movement started is is like night and day. It's like Not to interrupt or be dramatic, but his book literally changed my life. The orange one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. What, when was that? When did that come out? Probably like I nine. don't know. I bought it in like 2004. Yeah. So, and just learning web standards like yeah. completely changed the way I made websites. I wonder too, honestly, and I know again, it sounds like hyperbole. I genu genuinely wonder whether CSS ever would have made it as a mainstream technology without Eric Meyer because Eric Meyer, uh, he made it understandable. You know, it's a weird it's a weird way to specify styles, and it was really weird. It was weird compared to what we did before CSS on the web, and it was very weird compared to what designers were used to in the print world. And Eric Meyer really helped make that understandable. Well, they're the two guys who started an event apart. They're not the only speakers. There's a whole great lineup of speakers, um, and also the other thing that really sets an event apart about is that it's not just once a year. It tours and it comes to you effectively. Uh, they have upcoming events in Atlanta, Seattle, Boston, San Diego, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. 
and I think that only runs through August. I think you go further. I think there's uh, there's one in Austin coming up, uh, San Francisco. Check the website. You'll find one near you for the coming year. Uh, I've been to an event apart several times, I think three or four times, and it's always great. It's always new. Every year, uh, the speakers are always on the cutting edge. Um, and stuff, all sorts of new stuff, like stuff that we take for granted maybe even today, um, like responsive web design, where you make one design that scales to go from everywhere from a 3.5-inch iPhone to a 27-inch iMac, um, came on stage at an event apart. Uh, go to an event, an event apart.com. You'll find out more. You'll find out the, uh, the dates and the locations where they're coming. And if you use this URL, an event apart.com slash talk show, just talk show, no the, uh, they'll know you came from here and you can find cities, schedules, tickets, and more. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Great, great conference. Uh, and anybody who builds websites, if you if you owe it to yourself to go. So what else? CES, CES. The, I guess the only other big thing I saw was that there's a lot of car companies who were there. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I wonder if it. they're. I mean, I, you know, I guess they they want to be considered consumer electronics as well. Uh, I don't know, it's, that that one's really hard for me because I've never owned a car, so I don't really know. Huh? Like I remember when cars got CD players, and that was cool. And yeah. now I, you know, get in the cab and they have the name of the song that's playing, and I'm st- I still don't know how they did that, but on the radio. Um, but yeah, no, uh, you know, and Ford and Microsoft, I guess, have that kind of alliance. Yeah. Uh, and and there was something with Audi and Android. But it didn't. It seemed like it was a lot more hyped before CES than when the show came and went in terms of anything that was actually announced. Um, yeah, that, that that stuff always just seems so so forced. Yeah, I don't I, know. I'm I'm still waiting for to see how the announced back at WWDC, but still, you know, it's it, the seems like the cards aren't going to come out until later this year. How this iOS in the car turns out. Which is yes. more or less a way to let you use your iPhone, presumably. But I don't know. Maybe it'll work with iPads too. But you bring your iPad or iPhone to your car, plug it in, and then the UI of your car is driven by iOS. Hmm. And I don't know. It, you know, I have so many questions about that. And I feel like you know, all they did just kind of threw up a bunch of you know, here's the car companies who we've got on board so far. And in theory, it sounds great. And one of the things that sounds great about it is that rather than build, say, build Android 4.3 into the dash of your car, but then you keep your car for 10 years, and 10 years from now, you're running an old version of Android. If it was forward thinking enough, and it was just you plug your phone in, then when you get a new phone in a year or two, your car gets smarter too. Yeah. And you get new stuff, and you keep going forward. And a new OS and new right. apps and all that stuff. Uh, you know, like in the same way that Steve Jobs on stage seven years ago at the original iPhone introduction saying, let's get rid of all these little plastic buttons on these phones because you can't change them over time. And if you come up with a new idea in six months, you can't add a new button or joystick or whatever to do it. Let's just make it all software. I feel like that same sort of logic applies to let's let the brains of the car's 
computer be your phone because you're going to upgrade your phone a lot more. Fre- Most people, at least, are going to upgrade their phone a lot more frequently than their car. <laughs> well, unless you lease. Yeah. I guess people who lease yeah. their oh, cars okay. tend to you know, maybe upgrade on yeah. a, a phone-like cycle. But people who buy their car don't. Or yeah, least- and I saw actually a really interesting chart on Twitter today, which um, was like how people commute. And I, it was something like 70% of people commute in a car by themselves. So it actually is like a real use case and a real market. Like there's, you know, million, billions, I guess, of hours a year are spent right. car commute. So that's certainly a market for, you know, audio apps, um, audio advertising, you know, I, I don't think games or, or video are really well. I guess for the backseat people, well, it's about attention, right? I mean, attention. Right, totally. You know, the 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 quote unquote attention economy, which is sort of a sounds like a buzzword, but yeah. I think it's an important. It really is an important component of understanding the whole, you know, computer industry today. I mean, the computer slash entertainment industry is that all sorts of things are constantly in flux except for the fact that we only have 24 hours a day, right? Exactly. And everybody only has so much attention, and it's it's become the, you know, it's a limited resource, and, you know, the supply is constant and the demand is ever-growing, or, or I guess the supply of potential, I guess it's that the, I guess on the supply demand curve, the demand is constant because we each only have so much attention to give, but the supply of what we could give it to is, you know, it's infinite. And has been mostly, you know, dominated by terrestrial radio forever, basically. Right. And even, you know, what's the, the bigger change in recent years has been satellite radio, which is just terrestrial radio better using a yeah different distribution technology it's far closer to terrestrial radio in terms of experience and content than the internet or anything yeah yeah exactly anything interactive right. uh yeah i think it's interesting i i bet this is one of those things where just to get this technology in the car probably has like a, a at least a two-year maybe three-year lead time right um so that's probably part of the answer as to why it's one of those things that they kind of mention quickly and then hope you don't think too much about unless you're going to be developing for that sort of thing. Um, but once it's in there, if it is modular and if it's something that you know your phone is powering, it's kind of like uh, a, a real a real use case for the Palm Folio. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but it really yeah, is yeah. built into a car. It actually makes sense. But but I, you know, I I think like you said, like with that statistic, where seventy percent probably Americans has got it can't be, you know. I think yeah. I mean, America is clearly skewed in that direction of you know solo commuters in a car. Um, but you know, it, it's certainly it's not, certainly not unique. I mean, there's you know people who drive to work all over the world. Um, but if you could get them to shift their keep me from being bored to death while I do this for an hour or two hours or, you know, I'm no, there's all sorts of statistics, you know, on the number of people who have like two hour plus commutes a day um, and shift that keep me from going insane out of boredom from the radio, whether it's terrestrial or satellite and switch that to 
iOS or Android or you know any other platform. Boy, that's a huge opportunity. Like to suddenly have two more hours of somebody's attention a day going into the you know app economy instead totally. of the radio economy. Yeah, and you know I guess the early adopters are uh, the New York City cabbies who have chat lines that they're on all day, which is kind of interesting. You know that's not really a mainstream thing, but right. uh, that that's certainly one thing that could be more easily done with with some sort of app platform in your car. Yeah, I I have no doubt in my mind. I mean, I haven't done any. I haven't conducted a survey. Maybe I should. I don't know. But there's no doubt in my mind that the whole rise in podcasting as a popular and you know uh, something that can actually be a business is in large part driven by commuters. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't commute, so I, I listen to far fewer podcasts than, than probably most people who listen to this show. Um, but I think back to the years when I did commute and, and this is the thing where it doesn't even matter if you're in a car or not. I mean, people on, you know, who walk to work or take a subway to work or anything like that, any kind of public transportation, you know, you can listen to podcasts and I, there's no doubt in my mind that it, commuting is the attention fuel behind podcasting as a business. Yep. Yeah, I think that'll be definitely one of the uh, the, the home screen apps on right. whatever that UI looks like. But I think, wouldn't it be great if to Marco's, get... Marco's uh, forecast or whatever it's called. Wouldn't it be great to get your podcast? Yeah, Thundercats. Thundercats. What's Marco's podcast app called? I forgot. Overcast. Overcast, sorry. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah. Damn, that's a good name. Um, wouldn't it be great if your podcasts that were on your phone were as natively accessible in the car as turning on the radio, right? That's to me is what this iOS in the car hopefully is getting at where you don't, it's not like you're sitting there fiddling with cable connectors and a phone interface that isn't really meant to be used while you're in the car. You know, like when you want to turn on the radio, you just punch a button, right? And then if you want to change totally. the station, you twist the dial. Wouldn't that be great if you could pick through your podcast that easily? And that oh, it drives me nuts that Siri doesn't understand the concept of a podcast. Like if I say, play the latest episode of the talk show, it right. just... Even in the just, native just Apple bad. podcast app. Yeah. Like in yep. theory, it. boy, it would be great if you could get Siri, you know, in a, you know, and this opens up and we could do a whole show about, you know, yeah. Siri and third-party apps. But boy, wouldn't it be great if, you know, every podcast app could just provide Siri with, look, here's a structured data in the format you want of, and here's the content I have to offer. And so that the person can say, play the newest episode of the talk show, talk show in Overcast. And, and where I left off listening on my headphones because iCloud knows. Right. Uh, well, I guess that would be up to each app. But each app sure. could sync it their own way over yep. IP. But even when podcasts were part of iTunes app, you know, the music app, iPod, whatever it was called, it still couldn't couldn't handle it. It can do songs and do albums and all that kind of stuff, but can't can't handle podcasts. Right. So I hope that's uh and the other thing too that occurs to me is clearly the future of entertainment in your car, if if not the present, right? I'm sure there's a lot of people it's already the present, but the future of entertainment in your car it's not fm radio and i think it's not satellite radio i mean i think satellite radio is a temporary kludge um yeah when howard stern 
it's goes IP, into podcasting. It's it's, cellu- cellu- it's cellular IP, right? And yep. why pay for uh, some kind of cellular IP built into the car when you've already got your phone with you every single time you step into the car and your car has plenty of energy to spare to keep your phone charged while you use it? It's, you know, so hopefully that's the future. But there didn't seem to be any kind of major progress on that front at CES. And I was curious whether anybody was going to come out with something compelling before Apple does. And it doesn't seem like that happened. <laughs> nope. But maybe maybe that's the wrong venue for it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. You know, you never know. But, you know, but then why else would all these maybe car people be they at say CES? that for the car show or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Detroit car show or something. Anything else? Uh, I'm good. No, that's about it. So next year we're going to Vegas. We have to. Yeah, let's let's do it. <laughs> got it. someone's got to sponsor it, but let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Someone calls call Samsung. Get us. Uh... <laughs> yeah, somebody like Samsung should be the one to sponsor it. Yeah. Then then we'll do a live show right. at CES. We'll have uh, you know I don't know special guest. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll get on it. <laughs> I'll make it happen. <laughs> All right. Dan Fromer, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, throw out, what, what do you want to, what do you want to promote? You want to hey, pro- let's plug my podcast this week. Oh, uh, let's plug that. Because I promised uh, my wife we'd do one this weekend. So okay. we'll have a new episode. Uh, it, it actually, it, it's called The Needle and the Mouse, and it covers some of the topics we were talking about today, specifically the intersection of technology and fashion. So... Um, we talk about stuff like why are TVs so ugly and wearable and all that crap. So, um, the needle and the mouse.com and that's and spelled out A N D the needle and the mouse. So I bet if you just Googled, yeah. if you just Google search for the needle and the mouse podcast, it'll show up. Yeah, it's fun. We, we try to do it every couple of weeks and, uh, it's been great. Well, I think it's a, a ripe topic for, for a show. I think you easily fill up. Um, next two three years and the and the mac people will appreciate our our logo which is the old mac mouse nice very very nice all right thank you dan yeah thanks for having me all right see you in vegas